culture and the people around it, we kind of are obsessed with heroes, right? We, we, we love heroes. There's a reason that, that movies always involve heroes and they're the successful ones at the box office. We're just obsessed with heroes and, and not just fictional heroes. We love to elevate athletes and, and, and different people in our culture and musicians and, and, and vocalists. And we love to elevate them to a status that is this unreal status. And what we do when we do that is we kind of forget that they're just real people and they have their own flaws. And you know what happens in the church is that sometimes we do the same thing. We elevate all of these people that we read about in the Bible and, and we elevate them to this status where we just say like, oh, they're, they're the superhero type of person. And we forget that they're just real people and they had their own flaws. And so we're in the middle of a series that we're calling Heroes. And the reason I bring up that point of that, like, hey, these are just real people and they have their own flaws is... Oftentimes when we elevate those Bible heroes to a certain status, we kind of read those stories and we're looking at them and we're like, oh, we need to be like so-and-so and we need to be like so-and-so. But the point of their stories is never to tell us to be like so-and-so. The point of their story is to point to the ultimate hero, Jesus, the one who we should be like. And so today we're going to study about another one of these heroes. We're going to study about Gideon. And Gideon's story just does not make sense. It makes no sense. So when you look at it over and over, you're like, man, this, this makes no sense. And Gideon's story is found in the book of Judges. Now, here's the theme that happens in the book of Judges over and over. The people of Israel, God's people, they turn away from God. They turn away from God, and they start going, doing their own thing. They start worshiping idols. They start worshiping other gods. And they start going and, and rebelling against God. God lets them do that, but what God does is he allows for, for a, a people group to come in and then just, just oppress them or, or bring hardship into the lives of the Israelites. Eventually what happens is the people of Israel get so worn down, so oppressed that they're like, oh, now we remember God and we're going to cry out to God. And God responds and he sends a deliverer to deliver them. And that's what's going on in the story of Gideon. What's going on in the story of Gideon is that the people of Israel had went their own way. They're, they're worshiping idols. They're worshiping false gods. And God allows for the people of Midian, the Midianites, to come in and just oppress the people of Israel so bad. And so what would happen is, is that the people of Israel were a rural people, and so they would farm. And so when they would get their crops, when they would go and harvest their crops, the people of Midian would come in and they would just swoop in and they'd take all of the food and they'd take all this stuff. And it got so bad that the Israelites were just hiding in caves. They were hiding in caves. And then we get this really beautiful picture, this really powerful picture of just how bad it was. And because I grew up in New York City and not in the ancient Near East rural society, I cannot fully appreciate this picture. We get a picture of Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press. Let me show you what I mean. So I love when I get to tell all of you about farming. There's a lot of irony in that. And so what is happening when you thresh wheat? You are hitting the wheat, and you're hitting it hard, especially in the, in those, uh, in the cultures of those days. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to separate the edible seeds of wheat from the stalks. And so what happened was is that that had to be done in a very open space. Why? 
because wind played a big part in this process. So they would hit the stalks of wheat, they would hit it, and then what they would do is they just kind of like lift it up in the air and the wind would blow the stalks away because they were lighter and the seeds would fall down. So oftentimes the thresh floors for wheat was at the top of a hill because that's where you had the most access to wind. And so it would be an open space at the top of the hill. That's not where we find Gideon threshing wheat. We find him threshing it in a wine press, deep buried inside the ground. So the wine press was a, a big round thing. It was Think of like a stone jacuzzi inside the ground. And so they're in the ground, and it usually was at the bottom of the hill because that's where they would roll the grapes out, and that's where the grapes would be. It would be at the bottom of the hill to do that down there. So he's at the bottom of the hill, not at the top of the hill. He's inside this stone jacuzzi, and he's blocked off from wind. And so this is a frustrating thing for Gideon. He's, he's tossing the wheat in the air, and most of the time it's just going to fall right back on his head. And why is he doing this? Why is he in such a frustrating uh, process just trying to get some of this food for his family and for those around him and his people? Because he's afraid. Because if he doesn't do this, what will most likely happen is that the people of Midian will come in and swoop in and they will just take everything that they harvest and they will go hungry. And so he's trying to hide in this wine press to thresh the wheat. And then what happens after this, this is where we're introduced to Gideon. And then what happens is, is that the angel of the Lord shows up and we read of this interaction between Gideon and the angel of the Lord. And after we read that interaction, we just kind of have to shake our heads and be like, this, this really doesn't make that much sense. This doesn't make much sense. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be reading from the book of Judges. The book of Judges, chapter 6. Starting at verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord. Uh, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. So, though the angel of the Lord shows up to Gideon, he goes, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And it's almost like Gideon's like, I think you got the wrong number. You see, Gideon is president of the club that would have Gomer Pyle, Steve Urkel, and Sheldon Cooper as members in it. He is... He is this weakling. He is the weakest of the weak. And what appears to be happening is that we have a case of mistaken identity. Gideon's like, I think you have the wrong number. I'm not sure you know who you're talking about. But the reality is there is a case of mistaken identity. But it's not the Lord towards Gideon. It's Gideon towards the Lord. Gideon is the one who's making a mistake. And first, he's, he's questioning, like, yeah, if, if God is with me, and he's questioning all these things, like, where is God? Where is God? Because he doesn't realize who's actually talking to him, who the one actually is who approached him. The angel of the Lord said, the Lord is with you. And literally, that is what is going on. 
But then Gideon goes around and he starts to look around. And he goes, what is happening around here? If the Lord is with me, why is all this happening? I've heard all these stories in the past. I've heard how he's shown up in the past. But that doesn't seem to be my reality right now. I'm looking around me. I'm threshing wheat in a wine press. And things are pretty difficult right now. If God is for me, why isn't he doing something? Gideon's looking around at all the oppression and all the heartache and all this mess around him. And he's like, if God is for me, if God is with me, then why isn't he doing something? Sound familiar? You ever have that conversation with God? Because I know I have. Whether it was because of something going on in my life, whether it was something with the kids or something at work or whatever, and just like, it feels like I'm kind of alone here, God. Like, if, if you're really with me, why aren't you doing something about this? Or if I look around and I look around, uh, as we just talked about and we prayed earlier, if I look around at all the destruction in Florida and we look at how people's lives are just turned upside down and their homes are completely gone, or we look overseas and we look at the, the people in Ukraine and Russia and just how much their lives are turned upside down, or just the poverty around the world, it's easy to look around and say, God, why aren't you doing something? That's where Gideon finds himself at. He says, if the Lord is with us, what is he doing about all of this? And look at the Lord's response. Look at verse 14. He says, I am doing something. I'm sending you. He says, I am doing something. I'm sending you. I'm sending you. Chad is our pastor over uh, Impact Ministries here at Calvary Church. And I was talking to Chad this morning, and one of the things that he said is, hey, we're going to be exploring the ways that we can go and partner with different people who are going to help the people of Florida. And so we're going to be exploring that, and we're going to be coming to you in the next few weeks of just like how we can be a tangible expression of God's love to those in Florida. He also was talking to me about how he's working on uh, and finalizing details of a possibility for us to be hosting two refugee families from Ukraine at the two houses on our property. Because God is doing something, Calvary Church. He's sending you. And we have to be a church that responds. But what is Gideon's response to that? The Lord says, I am doing something. I'm sending you. Gideon's like, oh, hold on. I don't know if you know what you're talking about here. It's almost like he says, look, when I'm done, it's not like you're going to go around and proclaim 50 points to Hufflepuff. See, only a few of you laughed at that. Most of you don't understand that reference, but it's okay. The people who laughed have no clue who Gomer Pyle is. Something for everyone. Gideon's like, I don't have the strength to fix this. I don't have the courage to fix this. I am no one. And once again, we have a case of mistaken identity because Gideon thinks that he is the star of the show. Gideon thinks that this actually rests on him. He's given him all the reasons, like, I am the weakest of the weak. Do you, do you know who you're talking to? And God's response is simply this. God doesn't try to comfort Gideon. He goes, no, 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 you actually are stronger than you think. No, 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 no. You've been working out. Look, it shows. He hasn't been saying any of those things. What does God say in verse 16? He says to Gideon, I will be with you. Go do what I ask you to do. You know why you can do this? 
because I will be with you. And this happens over and over and over in the Old Testament. What happens is, is God saying, stop looking at the wrong person and stop looking at your weaknesses and your, your inefficiencies and stop looking at yourself and start looking at me. And he says this in the Old Testament. He says it in Genesis 26 to Isaac. He says it in Exodus 3 to Moses. He, sends it to, uh, he says it to Joshua in Joshua 1. Over and over and over, he sends people out on his mission. And the only factor that he ever points to for their success remains the same over and over. It's his promise that he says, I am with you. I am with you. What makes the heroes of our series heroes? That they obeyed God and that God was with them. And so Gideon has this case of mistaken identity. He thinks that it's all about him, and he's like, whoa, he got the wrong person. He doesn't understand who it is who's talking to him. He doesn't understand who's the focus of this mission, and he has this case of mistaken identity. But then it goes on from there. He doesn't have just a case of mistaken identity. He has a case of a mistaken assignment, because eventually what Gideon does is he listens, and he goes and does what God tells him to do. And he's actually pretty successful at getting prepared for it. He gathers together an army of 32,000 fighters, 32,000 warriors, 32,000 soldiers. And there's a bunch of stuff that happened in between that. We don't have the time to go through the whole story of Gideon today. So I really recommend that you go into the book of Judges throughout this week. It's a fascinating story. You really need to be reading the book of Judges and read the story of Gideon this week. Because there's so much that we're not going to cover today. But Gideon, he, he, he's, he's successful. He recruits this, this army, this 32,000. Now, it's still not enough. He's still outnumbered, but it feels good. And, and he comes into the story, and he's confident. You know, he's confident because he's got these warriors. And then the story twists once again. And we find ourselves in a point where we're like, yeah, this makes no sense. Let's go back to the book of Judges. We're going to be looking at chapter 7, starting at verse 1. Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harad. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for, for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as the dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. That doesn't make sense. And if you know the story of Gideon and you're looking backwards and you're reading it and you're like, oh, I know this story, I know how it ends, that's great. But you're not Gideon going through it. Imagine you're Gideon going through it. This doesn't make much sense. And so what happens is that Gideon enters into this chapter, and he's confident in the numbers. He's got 32,000 men. He's confident in the skill sets of these numbers, and, and, and he's confident of what's going to go. He's got his army. He's going over there, and God's like, mm, 
Nah, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to whittle that down a little bit. Ask any of them if they're afraid. Twenty thousand people leave. At that point, I'm panicking if I'm getting. I'm like, we were already outnumbered. This is bad. And God's like, ah, oh, still too many. And so he takes them down to the water, and if they dunk their heads into the water and just start slurping the water that way, he's like, get rid of those. Just keep the ones who cup their hands and just lick, lap the water up that way. And he's left with 300 warriors. 300 warriors. That's less than 1% of what he started with. And what Gideon and the people of Israel need to understand is that this isn't about their victory. What God is trying to hopefully prevent, what God is trying to prevent is that he doesn't want the Israelites to think that this is their victory. Their job wasn't to win the battle. Their job was to be present when God won the battle. So God shrinks the army, again, to less than 1% of their original size. And what he says after that is this. Now watch me show up. Watch me show up. And the only one who can ever get credit for this battle is me. Watch me show up. I have to be honest. As uncomfortable as it is to get to the point like Gideon did and get to the point of 1% of his army, to get to this point where it's just a situation where it does not make sense, I have to be honest. Man, I want to be there when God shows up. I really want to be there when God shows up. And he claims his victory. That could be awesome. That could be really awesome. And then what God does after that, he reveals just how much he is in control to Gideon. He's, ca- he's caused... Uh, Gideon to whittle down his army. He's like, you got to take a a step of faith. Let me show you just how much I'm in control. Let me show you how much I'm in control. And he sends Gideon to spy in the camp of the Midianites. Listen to this crazy story. Chapter 7, verse 13. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. What? So let me get this straight. Gideon goes into the camp and he hears a guy talk about a dream he had about a Wawa hoagie roll. Rolling into camp and destroying a tent. And the response from the friend is, this must mean that Gideon is going to be victorious. That would not have been my interpretation. I would have said to him, this means that you should not be eating Wawa hoagies before bed. This doesn't make much sense. And there's so much imagery in here. And again, I wish we had time to go into it. There's actually so much imagery about the barley uh, cake. And there's so much stuff there that really we could go into. But what I want to point out is this. God is orchestrating everything, even in this moment. What does he do? God sends Gideon to go spy on the Midianites. God causes a Midianite soldier to have a dream about a Wawahogi. The soldier wakes up and he turns and he asks for interpretation from his friend. And the friend gives interpretation just as Gideon is within earshot. 
It just so happens that Gideon walks by these two people that this is all happening. And the interpretation is heard by Gideon, and Gideon is encouraged. And over and over, God has demonstrated that he is the one in control. And he will be the one in control of the battle. And ultimately, that's what happens. God wins the battle. God brings victory. And God is victorious. And that's the point. The point is that God is the one in control. The point wasn't that the deliverance of Israel, the point of the battle against Israel isn't to free them from captivity or oppression or hardship. The point of it is not that God needed to provide them this life free of oppression and hardship. That's not the point of it. Because if it was the point, God wouldn't have allowed the Midianites to do that to begin with. The point of it was to draw God's people to him. And to reveal to them the need for a Savior. And that that Savior could only be God himself. You see, why did they get themselves in this mess to begin with? They decided to move away from God. They decided to move away and rebel against God. And God has to reveal to them, yes, I will deliver you. But I'm going to deliver you in a way so that you understand that the whole point of this deliverance is for you to come back to me. The whole point of this situation is for you to understand that you are in need of a Savior. And the only Savior you can have is me, God. He kind of still does that today, huh? He kind of still does that today. And oftentimes we get it mixed up. Oftentimes we, we have this misunderstanding and we think that the point of the battle we're going through is so that we can one day be victorious and we can get what we desire. But what we need to understand is that the point of the battle is so that we are drawn to God. So that he can draw us closer to him. And that we are in, realize that we are in need of a savior. And that that savior can only be found in Jesus. You see, once we accept Jesus as savior, we need to understand this. We can't afford to have a case of mistaken identity. We can't afford to have a case of mistaken assignment. And the reason we can't afford to have a case of mistaken identity or a case of mistaken assignment is because Jesus has sent us on an unmistakable mission. On an unmistakable mission. Matthew chapter 28. Some of you think to yourself, if you've been here for the past few months, you're like, Matthew 28 again? How many times are you going to read Matthew 28? A lot, just so you know, because we take it seriously. Verse 18, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. We were in need of a Savior, and so God sends Jesus. And so Jesus pays the ultimate price on the cross, and he is laid in a tomb, and three days later, he walks out of that tomb alive, eternally victorious. And all authority and all power belongs to him. And because of that, he goes and he has the authority to give us a command, and he gives us a great command. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations. And as a church, we are sent on an unmistakable mission, and the stakes are really high for this mission. And we're called to live out lives on mission, even when it doesn't make sense, even when things are less than what we desire for. But may I remind you that we aren't aren't attempting to gain our own victory. 
We're just asked to be present when God claims his victory. And what we also need to remember is that the command came with a promise. It came with a promise. You see, just like God told Gideon, and he told Isaac, and he told Moses, and he told Joshua, and all sorts of people in the Old Testament that he would be with them, Jesus couples his command to, cause, to tell us to live out our lives, continuing what he started, to live out our lives on mission. He couples this command with a promise. And that promise is that he will be with us always. Always. Sometimes that isn't easy to remember. Sometimes life has a habit of sometimes knocking some of us down. And sometimes it feels like you're very, very much alone. Sometimes the story doesn't make sense. Sometimes what you go through doesn't make sense. And sometimes there are hardships and sometimes there are difficulties and sometimes there are heartaches. And what I need you to understand is that this sermon wasn't meant to be one with a big application to it. This sermon wasn't meant to be one that you were going to walk away with. Here's five things that now you will do as you live life on mission. Do step one, two, three, and four, and five. That's not one of these sermons. This sermon was meant to be one of comfort. It was meant to be one of comfort. You see, if you're going through one of those Points in your story where things just don't make sense. What I need you to understand is that that promise is true. And that you are not alone. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. And I know sometimes it is hard to remember that because the stories we're reading about on Sunday, they happened a long time ago. I mean, even Gideon struggled with that. Remember back, he's like, I've heard of these stories. I've heard of these stories in the past, but what about now? I've heard that these things happened in the past, but what about now? I have to be honest, sometimes I'm like that. I've, I've heard of these stories. I've heard of the way that God has shown up, and I've even experienced them in my own past, but what about today? Where is God's faithfulness today? What is God doing today? And sometimes I get blind because I lose focus, and I start looking at the wrong things, and I look at my surroundings instead of focusing on God. Sometimes I just need a reminder. Sometimes I just need a reminder. Because I'd love to just get a picture of what a life like that looks like today. I'd love to get a picture of what a life of one of those heroes could look like today. What does it look like to have someone who's living out that life on mission, completely content that God is with them? I would love to see that picture today. And God allowed me to see a picture this past Thursday. God allowed me to see a picture this past Thursday. Betty Bradford is one of our Calvary saints. She's been here for a long time. A long time. She has one of the best smiles in the world. Betty on Friday went home to be with the Lord. But prior to that, I got a phone call on Thursday. You see, Betty woke up that morning, and she woke up thinking that it was just a normal day. In fact, she got into her uh, granddaughter Amy's Jeep, and they were just going about things, and something took a turn, something unexpected. She found herself in the emergency room. 
And I'm in a meeting with Josh, one of the other pastors, as we get a phone call about this. And so we said, meeting stops, we're going to the hospital. And we go there and we bring some oil and we go there to go and encourage Betty. We go in there to pray for Betty and and anoint her with oil. And we think that that's what we're going to do because, you know, we're pastors. That's what pastors do. But it quickly became apparent when I was there that Betty was going to be more of a blessing to me that day than I was going to be to her. And while I may have grabbed her hand, she was holding my hand and encouraging me and speaking words of peace and love to me. And then she said something to me that I immediately wrote down in my phone as I walked out of that room because it struck me so powerfully. Here is a woman who woke up thinking that life was going to be one thing that day. And she finds herself in the emergency room knowing that she will ultimately go and see the Savior she loves so much in just a short time. And she says to me this, Each day we wake up and God directs our steps. We don't always know where we're going. But he's always with us. That hit my heart so powerfully. Because I was complaining a lot this week about my own difficulties. And here's someone who's lived 98 years on mission full of peace and joy because her God was with her. Each day we wake up and God directs our steps. We don't always know where we're going. But he's always with us. Always with us. If you're going through a time right now that just doesn't make sense, you are not alone. You are not alone. The Lord is with you. Calvary Church, there's a reason Betty could smile with that kind of smile. Because she understood that the Lord is with her. And I ask that we live out lives just like that this week. Boldly living on mission. Comforted by the knowledge we have that the God who loves us more than we can imagine is with us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your love. We thank you for your mercy and your grace and your presence. God, I thank you for Betty. Not just for all of the things that you've done through her throughout her life. I thank you for Thursday and the reminder that I so desperately need. God, sometimes the story doesn't make sense. Help us to cling to the truth that you are with us. Help us to understand that the victory doesn't have to be ours. In fact, it's not supposed to be. Help us to understand we're just supposed to be present while you win the battle. Let that give us peace today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 